Welcome back to Modern Medieval, the podcast. I'm Elo. And I'm Megan. And this week, we're going to be doing something new. We're going to be talking about saints and patron saints. Yeah, we're really excited, especially because this, for myself personally, is like in my future research repertoire. And so we are going to play our clip, but we wanted to give a little background context so that you know what you're listening to rather than just being blasted with Byzantine chants. Yeah, and I think it will help. Yeah, so there's this really cool project that was conducted by a Stanford University art historian who studies, this is such a cool field, the field of acoustic archaeology. So what that was a thing. I didn't know. Apparently it's like a new, because of technology, you can do this. That's so cool. So what she's been spending the past decade doing with her team is studying the reverberant acoustics in Byzantine cathedral music as a whole. But she just did one about Hagia Sophia, which is so on par with what's going on there. It's returning to being a mosque and also just its history. And so she did this really cool project where she would go in, I think she went three or four times, and pop a balloon in the empty really? cathedral. Yeah. And then somehow, you know, science and all that, they would record the echoes of that balloon pop and then take wow. that and program it with architectural, you know, sound space and then create a program that you could then record music. And with that program, it would mimic or produce the sound effects of that space. That's incredible. So cool with technology. There's so many new things that are going to be discovered. Yeah, it's truly astounding. So with this project, she just created a playlist, and we'll include this in our notes, called The Lost Voices of Hagia Sophia with the Byzantine chant group Capella Romana. Did 12 songs, all Byzantine different types of chants, through this program. Part of the reason why she really wanted to do this was apparently the way that Hagia Sophia is constructed is that the sound reverberation is supposed to layer on top of itself and create kind of like numerous layers of echoes so that not quite like a drone, but the the building of sound gets thicker, which is just so cool. So we're going to play a little clip from the very last song on this, this album compilation, what have you, which is from the Asmaticon Sherubic Hymn. And just quickly what the Shrubicon or Shrubic hymn is, usually sung at the great entrance during a Byzantine liturgy. And the hymn symbolically incorporates the pre- those present at the liturgy, so the, the audience, with the angels gathered around God's throne. So it's concerned with the very heart or the core of the divine liturgy, also known as the anaphora. This can be traced back, this practice, all the way back to St. Basil and to John uh, Chrysostom's redaction of Basil's liturgical text. Just kind of a cool thing to think about angels and being present with them. It kind of echoes slightly when we were speaking with Nick about transubstantiation and having spirits from the dead sitting with you. So just some layers of everything. So I we're going to think I still can't pronounce transubstantiation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're going to play about a minute clip for you. It's from the middle of the Asmaticon. Um, but hopefully you can just listen and hear what we were briefly just informing you about. (laughs) 
why i always find these things so scary <laughs> really i have the opposite i have goosebumps and no i mean it's beautiful but like i kind of associate this with the beginning of a horror movie or something like that or maybe oh. i or like maybe with like um exorcisms i associate it with exorcisms oh interesting well i'm glad i didn't choose one of the songs that has the organ because <laughs> that would have totally had kind of that ominous feel to it yeah yeah, for sure. But yeah, I don't know if any of you heard, but the rising of the bass and then the high notes. No, it must be so impressive to be in, you know, the cathedral when that they're actually singing it. it must like be something unbelievable. Yeah, truly transformative. That's meant to set kind of our tone for... <laughs> <laughs> but just thinking about the sacred and the holy and sacred and holy spaces, the way that we interact with them, the way that it permeates our daily life. Yeah. Or not. <laughs> yeah. So the first example that we wanted to take um, was St. Rosalia. If you guys listen to the last episode, um, you'll know that I'm in Sicily. I'm near Palermo. So St. Rosalia is kind of really relevant, especially considering her relationship with current events, let's say. St. Rosalia is the patron saint of Palermo and she's venerated in the Roman Catholic Church. So the celebrations that still occur to this day are in the 14th of July and on the 4th of September. On the 14th of July, you have like a feast in her honor. And on the 4th of September, you've got a, a pilgrimage on the Mount Pellegrino. Iconographically, you can see her depicted as a young woman, sometimes holding a cross or a book or a skull. And you know, representations of the scene that she's really known for. She's also known for wearing a crown of roses because she was meant to be really beautiful and young and pure um, and is attended by uh, angels. And so why is she so important? What is the story behind um, her saint sainthood? Um, so she was born in the 12th century into a noble family linked to the royal family. And she was then the, her birth was announced as something very special. Um, in fact, she was meant to be born like a rose without horns. And so it was meant to be kind of, you know, spectacular. But she was declared a saint because it was said that in 1625, so in the 17th century, the saint saved Palermo from the Black Death. And she became its patron. So interesting, you know, the concept of being in an, on an island because a boat from Tunisia came and carried, had sick people or rats or whatever with the Black Death, with 
the plague and contaminated everyone. And so the story goes that on February 13, 1625, a young man, Vincenzo Bonelli, was about to commit suicide because his young son had died from the Black Death. And so he saw no hope for his survival and didn't see any point in living. And as he was about to throw himself off the cliff, so Vincenzo Bonelli had inadvertently gone to the, or the cave where she, her remains were buried. And as he was about to throw himself off the cliff, she appeared to him stating that he was going to help her cure the Black Death and that what he was meant to do was tell the bishop about where her remains were and that they should be moved to Palermo. But that unfortunately, he was going to die of the Black Death too. So he goes and confesses, goes into a confession and tells the bishop about this. The bishop then moves her remains into Palermo. And in fact, inexplicably, on June 9th, 1625, the Black Death disappeared from Palermo. And there was a service where he thanked St. Rosalia. So because of this event, however it had actually turned out, they built two churches or chapels in her honor in Palermo, one of which was built in where her parents used to live. So kind of showing how, you know, the past and the present linked to one another. Because, um, you know, she was born in 12th century and this is 17th century and so it's interesting because from what we know and how we think of you know saints and saint patron saints the history seem kind of remote whereas this is fairly recent in terms of chronology and it's interesting as well because to this day saint rosalia is celebrated so that was why I brought this to the table. <laughs> yeah, well, she's currently being invoked by the citizens of Palermo to protect from COVID-19. So her yeah. cult status, she's still actively a participant in culture, partially because I believe, Ella, you've told me that Sicily and perhaps Italy as a whole is still extremely religious. Or I not extremely, all, but yeah, it's but present. They, in the the, the celebration of, of um, saints is something that's very important mm-hmm. um, in every little region, every little place as well. And so another thing to note is that... Um, it's interesting how there's a repeat of history, right? Because um, at the moment in Sicily, there's only 82 cases, but 71 of them come from migrants who came from Tunisia. And so it's kind of interesting how, obviously, if you're an island, that, that is a risk that whenever people come, that may happen. And so it's kind of interesting how there is a repeat of history in a way. Obviously very different, but, you know. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, one other thing about St. Rosalia that is not necessarily Sicilian, but actually Flemish, is that her iconography that we think of post-1624, uh, 1625, is that she was very iconographic for the Flemish painter Anthony van Dyck, who he himself was trapped in his city during the uh, quarantine of the 16, mid-1620s. And so he produced five paintings of St. Rosalia during this time. Um, which are now in Madrid, Houston, London, New York, and Palermo itself. Yeah. And so that, again, is just like another way of her presence. Yeah, also because it's... that occurred at the same time as her bones being moved, moved. from the cave yeah. and then taken to Palermo and eradicating the plague there. And then yeah. hundreds, if not thousands of miles away, we have a very iconic Flemish painter who is producing that. work that embodies her. And even if you're not, perhaps religious, I feel like there is just kind of the coincidence of those things where it's kind of like, oh, something may be going on. Yeah. And it's really interesting as well, because if you're like, saints are 
they feel very far away and they feel like something from the middle ages um, <laughs> and so the fact that you know this is a presence that like reverberates into our into our culture is very interesting i find definitely and so returning to flanders in that area i'm going to talk about a saint who i think is just a badass bitch <laughs> um, and this is saint valperga there's a few ways you can say her name but we're just going to say valperga which is W-A-L-P-U-R-G-A. So she is an Anglo-Saxon missionary to the Frankish Empire. So she originally lived in the 8th century, so 710 to 777. So she's a bit earlier than St. Rosalia. But she was canonized in 870. And she's perhaps most known now for people who are not native to that area for St. Valpurgis Night or Sanct Valpurgis Nacht. Hmm which is the name for the eve of her feast day, which coincides with May Day. Oh, cool. Yeah, there's this really interesting, you know, thing going on there that is a combination of, I mean, May Day is seen as like a a pagan tradition, the maypole and everything. And I mean, it's become very associated with horror films. If you think of The Wicker Man or most recently Midsommar. I actually have really nice memories of May Day because at uni, May Day was the day where you'd get up really early and you'd go and hear people sing in the choir. But I can understand that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's just like, at least in cinema, it's become kind of this potentially sinister holiday, perhaps because it is such a joyous day. I don't know. But um, so her feast day is the eve of that. So it kind of crosses over both days. And I think that's just kind of, it's nice. So St. Valperga was born in the county of Devon in England into a local aristocratic family. And her family is just full of saints. So she's <laughs> the daughter of St. Richard the Pilgrim, also known as Richard of Wessex, an under king of the West Saxons and of St. Luna of Wessex, that's her mom. Then she has two brothers, St. Villibald and St. Vinibald. So that family is just super holy, I guess. (laughs) Imagine if you're born into that, like you must be quite off pressure. I think it's quite extraordinary, like that example. But so her father sets out in 721 on a pilgrimage to Rome with her two brothers. Valperga is left behind, she's 11, to a monastery at Vimborm Abbey in Dorset. And she's living there for a year when she gets news that her father has died on the way to Rome. Uh, he died at Luca. So after her father's burial is taken care of and everything, he's buried at the Basilica of San Frediano. Her brothers go to Rome and they both get really, really sick there. It's a little unknown of if it's the Black Death or malaria, right. but they're both very ill. So after recovering, her brother Vinibald, who's not, he wasn't the most healthy fella just to begin with, he stays in Rome to pursue further studies, to get more involved in the church and studying and everything. Whereas Vinibald goes to the Holy Land mm-hmm. and he's gone for about seven years. And so when he gets back to Italy, he becomes a monk at Monte Cassino which is also related that area to St. Benedict, who we'll talk about in a bit. So, but in 730s, we're talking about almost a decade later, Vinibald, the one who was hanging out in Rome because he wasn't feeling super well, returns to England and he gets, I guess they have a third brother, don't know the name. Apparently he's not a saint. He's just a person, poor fella. Um, (laughs) They get a clan and they go back to Rome to begin a monastic lifestyle there. And so during this time, 
Valperga, who, as you can tell, is very, the life of her brothers is really important in her story, yeah. and we'll get to that. Um, but she's just been staying at Wimborne, becoming educated. So she becomes a nun. And what I think is super cool is that the nuns of Wimborne were skilled not only in copying and ornamenting manuscripts, so doing illustrated letters, marginalia, and all of that, which is a very, very skilled craft. Yeah, but going back to writing, kind of. Right, but they're also were highly celebrated for their what's known as opus anglicanum, or English work, which is really fine needlework of medieval England done for ecclesiastical, secular use on clothing, hanging, scarves, and everything. And it's highly detailed, like gold and silver. So she's learning this really fine needlework, as well as this very exclusive form of manuscript illustration. So she's learning all this great demand. So she's already in somewhere that's like highly renowned. And she's in this monastery for 26 years. But in 737, her uncle, St. Boniface, so another saint in the family, was in Roman recruits, her brothers, to help him with religious work in Germany. Mm-hmm. they both go there and become like really big head honchos there. And so Volpergo travels with them. So she goes to Germany. She leaves Wimborne to assist in this, you know, mission. As they say, evangelizing the still pagan Germans, which, you know, that's religious colonialism. But because of her re- rigorous training, she was able to write both her brother Vinibald's Vita or Life in Latin and of his travels in Palestine. And then so because of this, as a result, She's often called the first female author of both England and Germany. That's so cool. I mean, that's just amazing. And then to kind of just round all this up and like why she's a big deal. So she becomes a nun in the double monastery of, oh gosh, I apologize, German once again, everybody. (laughs) Heidenheim um, Hanenkam, which is founded by her brother Willibald. Her brother appoints her as his successor. And following his death in 751, she becomes the abbess of that monastery. And then in 760, upon the death of her brother, Vinibald, she also succeeds him as superintendent of the Heidenheim Monastery. I mean, I just think that that's extraordinary that this woman is being given such great access and positions of power and using her skills in writing, which we often think are very male-dominated at this time and becoming a truly astounding figure. I also, while you were talking, was thinking about the fact that... um, I don't know if this is in psychology, but like there is this vision of women as either saints or prostitutes in some like Yeah, realms. the Madonna horror complex. Yeah. yeah. And then it, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, we've gotten two examples of women who, you know, can be celebrated for their achievements and for what they do, but only because they're superhuman, you know. Though for this current podcast, we are staying away from martyred saints because talk about superhumans. Those men and women, but the women especially. But we're going to save that for when I hopefully am able to talk about my future research and talk about contemporary superwomen as well. But yeah, I think that these are two great cases of women who are superhuman, but they're not beyond extraordinary. Like you said, they're using their skills and it's because of their skills that they're well-loved. Really interesting. But so we gave you two examples of female supergirls. Um, and now we were going to give you, you know, more perhaps things that you've heard about and you can, you know, can, can go ding, ding, ding in your, in your mind. So more of a general overview of saints as well. So we were thinking of Francesco d'Assisi, mm-hmm. uh, St. Francis, whose story is quite well known. 
I think. I think so. I mean, I also went to a Catholic high school, so we right. had like a whole section on him. So yeah, St. Francis, we were trying to escape out of Italy, but <laughs> I mean, first of all, the Vatican's there. So yeah, it's kind of that. hard to escape that. <laughs> right. But also St. Francis, who is one of the patron saints of Italy, is just like Ella was saying, so well known. I mean, I think he's in like top three most recognized saints around the world, regardless if you're religiously affiliated or not. So he was a 12th century saint and he grew up in a really wealthy family that he then tosses aside and shuns. Um, Yes, that's what I remembered. Yeah, like I remember in high school, we watched this film on him and there's like a famous scene. This is part of his kind of story where he's tossing all the silk robes and garbs out of his home into the square and everyone's gathering because it's a spectacle and his family's so upset and he's like I toss away all these material earthly possessions because St. Francis is very much about living life of poverty yeah very simple life Um, it's interesting as well because um, this reminds me of Siddhartha because Siddhartha basically well Siddhartha doesn't he just leaves yeah and he goes to what's and for those of you who don't know Siddhartha becomes the first Buddha yeah just to sometimes I feel like people aren't (laughs) <laughs> they don't make that like connection. connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so St. Francis is very, very important because his order is called Order of Friars Minor, but he also makes the Order of St. Clair, which is the women's order. And then the last one he has is the Third Order of St. Francis, which this means so the women's order is technically considered the second one. Right. He was so popular in his time that people who are married or had other sort of like factors that wouldn't allow them to join a first order. He created this third order so that they could still live pious lives right. as best they could. So that I think just is a great testament to how accepting he was as a human. Yeah, so he was eventually canonized in 1228. And along with St. Catherine of Siena, he is one of the patron saints of Italy. And he's probably most well known to everybody for being the patron saint of animals and the natural environment. So he appears in like lots of gardens. It's true. I actually, to be fair, I feel like I've seen a lot of representations of him that way with deer usually. (laughs) Yeah, like deer or birds like on his shoulder, his hand. Thought that we would bring him, bring him in. And so briefly to clarify for everyone what a patron saint is. So I didn't really know the difference between like a patron saint and a saint per se. But they are they are different. They have different implications. So we're all familiar with patron saints because you have like a patron saint of like lost objects. Saint Christopher, I believe it is. Mm. And people wear his uh, necklace and he's like also the patron saint of travelers or something. Maybe I should wear that too. <laughs> um, but then we also have other like Saint Francis, patron saint of Italy. Saint yeah. George, who we'll talk about in a bit, patron saint of England. So, you know, what is a patron saint? It's somebody who is identified as a heavenly advocate of a nation, a place, a craft, activity, class, clan, family, or person. So oftentimes you have a patron saint who will be like of a nation, but they'll also be of childbirth and health and martyrs and gardening or something. I mean, some of these saints have lists that are like 30 different attributes that way. But also, so we think of patron saints usually in regard to Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, or Eastern Orthodoxy. However, there is patron saints in Islam. Really? I didn't know that. So though Islam doesn't have like a particular codified doctrine of patronage, like the, the Catholic Church, they do have saints who are an important part of their practice of religion. 
of both uh, Sunni and Shia Islamic tradition. Mm -hmm. So they usually, these classical saints that they have usually serve as the heavenly advocates for specific Muslim empires, nations, cities, towns, and villages. So it seems like it's a bit more bound to like a geographic location right. and space. But apparently, according to one scholar, Martin Ling, there's hardly a region in the empire of Islam which has not a Sufi for its patron saint, which is quite yeah. interesting. It usually kind of develops organically from some local individual. So again, like Christianity. However, unlike Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox Christianity, their patron saints in Islam are often recognized through popular acclaim rather than through yeah. official declaration. Right. So kind of like just popular people that then develop a cult or yeah. something rather yeah. than royal yeah. decree it's so interesting to see how these things kind of exist in more than one religion and that like you know something that we kind of think is specific to one culture and one religion actually isn't yeah exactly and again i think that this is something that shows in that vein how you know there's like the religious culture wars currently going yeah. on especially in america of islam verse whatever Christianity is in America, you know, and yeah. they, they share so much. Same with uh, Judaism. Yeah. So much is shared and they're, yeah, they're not quite that different. Yeah. Um, and yeah. It's this very, really controversial thing. You know, you either go on one side or the other as if, you know, it's so, you know, dualistic. It's not really yeah. like that. Well, and then whatever is pointed at as other or negative is usually the radical sex. And that goes, to both. I mean, yeah. in America, everyone that is evil and other, and I hate using those terms, but those are just very blanket part of the rhetoric, yeah, yeah, are yeah. the extremists. It's not the general population. And you could say that about like the anti-abortion people in America who like blow up the clinics. Those are extremists. Yeah. Have you watched on Netflix the series Unorthodox? Oh no, it's on my list. That's really quite interesting because um, I knew nothing about Orthodox Jews mm -hmm. um, and especially the communities in New York. So it kind of gives you an insight onto what kind of potentially the struggles can be and what difficulties they have. Also, I feel like often if you're not part of that culture, you don't really know, you know, you, you get these like prejudices about what, what they do and what their lives are like when actually it might not be like that. Yeah, especially I have found that Orthodox Judaism, I feel, is a bit more secluded because they, they stay within their communities. It's one of those cases of like the unknown is yeah. there for others and not made. Yeah. 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 But so, yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out because... It's really good. Let me know what you think. Yeah, definitely. So returning to saints, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we want to go a bit broader again. So we just did patron saints of Italy. Now we want to talk about... Focus. We focus, we focus again. Yeah, so we're going to talk about Europe as a whole. There are quite a few for Europe, but perhaps the most famous one is St. Benedict of Nursia, mm -hmm. who we know now as St. Benedict, the rule of St. Benedict, yeah. Benedictine monks and nuns. And they're the ones who created monasteries and convents as we know them today. I mean, super radical. So he was a 5th to 6th century, so March 480 to March 543. He's venerated in the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Oriental Orthodox Church, the Anglican Communion, and Old Catholic Churches. 
So that is really broad and really impressive. Right. So I think that's part of the reason why he's patron saint, along with his accomplishments. He is usually identified. I'm going to tell two quick, like, anecdotal stories about him. So basically, he was born of a Roman noble Mm -hmm. in the modern day Norcia and Umbria. Tradition has it that he has a twin sister, Scholastica. We don't know if they're actually twins, but they were related. And she's another important saint. So Benedict was sent to Rome to study, as you did at that time. And so he's around the age 20, and he's in Rome, and he is completely disillusioned with the academic style there. He just thinks that it's rife with sin and distractions. What's my excuse? (laughs) (laughs) So he's trying to find somewhere to live a simpler life where he doesn't face this temptation. So he takes his his nurse with him as a servant and they settle down and live in Antheta, which tradition has it is near Sabayaco. But near there is a valley and in this valley is a cave. And he's like, kind of like St. Rosalie. He's like, oh, cool, cave. I want to live here. <laughs> um, so he meets this monk, Romanus of Subayaco, who kind of convinces Benedict of this lifestyle choice. Benedict hanging out in this cave. People start to like hear of him and his disconnection from the world and they come and they visit him and he gains, he grows in popularity. So over the span of three years, he becomes super popular. Eventually due to his popularity, there are these monks that are at a monastery nearby and they're like, hey, can you please become our abbot? We really respect you. And he's like, I, Benedict says, I'm too strict for you. You will just come to resent me. And they're like, no, no, you'll be, you'll be fine. So he goes there and very quickly they decide that they do not like him and they Mm -hmm. try to poison him with poisoned wine. So Benedict, as he's blessing his meal and his wine, the glass shatters and the deceit is shown. So that's one of his like emblems as a shattered glass. Another monk tried to poison him (laughs) with a guy. Yeah. um, Or a neighborhood priest, not a monk. Florentius, who is super envious of Benedict and goes to his cave because Benedict goes back to his cave and gives him poisoned bread. And so Benedict is in the process of blessing everything. And a raven comes in and swoops and steals the poisoned loaf. Oh my God. <laughs> and so a raven is another one of the emblems of him. So these are seen as miracles, which to become a saint, you have to perform some sort of miracle. Yeah. Num- numerous. And it's a really, really long process. And we'll save that for another episode. Um, Cause there are people like Joan of Arc, who's considered a patron saint yeah. of France. Quite interesting. We're trying to give you an overview of right. the starting point. So Benedict survives, you know, these attempts at being poisoned. In about 530, he leaves Subiaco to avoid further temptation and animosity. And he founds 12 monasteries in the vicinity of Subiaco. And then eventually in 530, he founds his great Benedictine monastery in Monte Cassino. Mm-hmm. And this is on a hilltop between Rome and Naples, for those of you who don't know. This just becomes like a really important medieval site, early medieval site of worship. And he dies in 547 and he is named the patron protector of Europe by Pope Paul VI in 1964. So his patronage of Europe is quite new, but historically he's been super important. And um, in 1980, Pope John Paul II declares him co-patron of Europe together with Saints Cyril and Methodius, who are patron saints from the ninth century, um, Byzantine Christian theologians, and they are known for evangelizing the Slavs. So that's to include Central and Eastern Europe. 
that's St. Benedict in a really rapid nutshell. There's a lot else going on. I mean, there's a famous depiction of him by uh, Fra Filippo Lippi in 1445, who's one of the like Renaissance late medieval artists. Like that is a name and a person that's like very well seen. Yeah, that's a patron saint of Europe. It's just kind of, you know, we we find these things really interesting. And so we thought we'd share it with you. And also just to kind of show that even if you're not part of a religious sect or culture, how these figures still permeate life everywhere. So mm-hmm. an example would be like St. George, exactly. not religious. You know, you don't necessarily know his story, but you know that he slayed a dragon at some point, right? And yes. yet in England, you see statues of him everywhere. Everyone just knows the story of St. George and the dragon. And yeah. that is also an iconographic image that is drawn upon everywhere so even if you don't know the name you know that image yeah and so you might know and this depends as well what's quite interesting is that you see these um saints and the way that they're represented or illustrated depending on where you are so you may know more about saint francis if you're near assisi or you know you may know more about saint rosalia or scholastica which i never heard of before but i had heard the name i never knew what her story was <laughs> yeah so it's just interesting especially because just talking about saint benedict i mean that was in the 20th century where he was made patron saint of europe whereas for example saint george becomes patron saint of england in 1350 yeah so, so it's kind of a different you know history and it's interesting as well like because with saint benedict like it's interesting that you know quote unquote modern times you'd have like the sanctification of someone as if you know it's not a, a, an old fashioned quote unquote again you know it's not old or exactly and like I just alluded briefly mentioned Joan of Arc talk about an icon yeah. she is like a figure of France but also just an identifiable figure used around the world especially for female strength I mean she's been the person you know you get asked the question who would you like to have dinner with for me she's probably that person if not she's like really? in my top two or three. yeah I mean, I fell in love with her when I was nine years old. I've written like a bunch of book reports on her. One of my essays for Bob was on her. She, of course, she'll be in my PhD like dissertation. There's just something. She'll be an episode. Yeah, something (laughs) beautiful and powerful about her. We're not saints, but (laughs) you know, if you want to join the cult of modern medieval, the podcast, Ella, why don't you tell them where they can uh, worship and follow us? You can find us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify by typing Modern Medieval The Podcast. You can find us on Instagram by typing podcast.modern.medieval. And you can find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page and a Facebook group by just typing Modern Medieval Podcast. Then Twitter, right? (laughs) And Twitter, yeah. You should be able to find us if you can't get it onto Facebook, just type in Modern Medieval Podcast in Google and Facebook should be the first thing that pops up with us. So oh, that's, that's cool. exciting. Everything else to find us is like virtually impossible still, but for now. Yeah, for now. But on Twitter, you can find us. Our handle is at medieval underscore modern. Tweet at us. Email us at modern.medieval.podcast at gmail.com. Give us those comments, questions, memes, inspirations, anything. Say hi. Just keep us going, guys. Yeah. Until next time, I'm Megan. And I'm Ello. And this is Modern Medieval, the podcast. Hey!